Hello, and welcome to Maine Golf Talk. We are your hosts, Zach Zonlo and Henry Fall. In these podcasts, we'll be discussing what makes Maine Golf so special. We'll be sharing our own experiences and knowledge as both players and coaches. We'll also branch out to discuss hot topics in the game and chat with special guests to hear their stories. All to keep you in the know and help you improve your game. Let's get into today's podcast. All right, welcome to another episode of Maine Golf Talk. Henry and I are joined by one of Golf Digest's best young teachers in America and former Mainer, Ben Pelicani. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. So uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your time in Maine. Uh, did you grow up here? Yeah, so I was I was born in Bangor, uh, but I my family was living in Pittsfield at the time, which which tells you how small Pittsfield was. We had to drive forty five minutes to get to Bangor, uh, <laughs> so my mom could have me. Um, but uh, my dad was the basketball coach there at at Maine Central Institute. So uh, back in the eighties, MCI had a pretty good prep basketball program and my dad was the, the head basketball coach there and uh, they made a little change in, in what they wanted in the early 90s uh, they they kind of wanted to downsize their basketball program a little bit so my dad moved us down to Maryland and uh, that's that's where I went to, to middle school and high school but every summer we would go back my grandparents lived in Rockland Maine until they passed away and so my dad grew up in Rockland and both my parents went to the University of Maine at Orono, so uh, they're both black bears. And and I kind of just remember summers in in Rockland. That's where I started playing golf at Rockland Golf Club. Uh, it was great. There was no irrigation uh, outside of 150 yards, and it was built on an old rock quarry, so it was perfect. Just kind of sling hook one out there, and the ball would run forever for a little guy. And uh, that, so that's that's kind of where I grew up. Like. I always say I'm, I'm from, I'm from Maine. My wife jokes that I've lived outside the state so much now that I can't keep saying that. But if you go into uh Rockland golf club and Keenan Flanagan, who's the, the head pro there and been a pro there as long as I know, uh, I walk in and, and all of a sudden I'm Paul's boy. And if people forget who Paul was, it's a, you know, Nick Pelicani, that's Paul was Nick's boy. And so it's just kind of, uh, my, uh, where I identify with Rockland, Maine is a special place for me. And after college, I, I played golf at Bucknell university. And, and after college, I remember day after graduation, I drove, drove up and I started my first job ever was at Samoset resort. So my first year out of college and I played my last amateur event in Maine. So played in the main AM, uh, and then turned pro a couple of weeks later, uh, to play in the GBO. So, uh, made a check, which made me feel really good. I, and I'm not sure if it covered the entry fee or not, but felt really good to make a check that first event and played in the main open and, and was trying to, to play full time at the time. And then I went down to Florida uh, when the season turned a little bit after my time of working at SAMA. Yeah. I, I love Rockland. Uh, those, those greens, uh, they're tiny and it's a great way to kind of work on the game and Samoset is, you know, incredible. Uh, so you went to uh, Bucknell and you have the individual record for lowest score. What was it like going to such a prestigious school and playing golf there? 
Well, uh, I was to, to tell you where I was in this recruiting class. Um, I got called April of my senior year to be offered a spot, which really means that everyone had turned him down and he thought, ah, what the heck, we'll offer this kid a spot. Uh, so I got up there and, and probably what I'm most proud of is, is I never missed a start in my college career due to golf. Uh, we had a couple academic things because Bucknell's a, a pretty rigorous school where they, they would make you stay at home for certain times. Uh, but I never missed a start because of golf. Uh, played in the five spot a lot. Uh, the, the irony of, of that, that school record, which one day will be broken, uh, it's my only really claim there at, at Bucknell, is uh, I had to play in a 54-hole playoff just to be the sixth man for that event. So Patriot League Championships at the time, it was a, a play six, count four format, and we were hosting at our home golf course at, at Bucknell. It was supposed to be at Army, but they had gotten a foot of snow 10 days prior to the event. And so last minute, they switched it to our golf course. And so we had to, me and this, this other uh, player, this, uh, our coach couldn't decide who was going to be in the sixth spot. So I wasn't even in the top five. That's how bad I was. I was on the outside looking in. And so we played off. I think I won by like three shots over 54 holes and and I only played nine holes in the practice round I was exhausted we had played basically three straight days up into it and um, my coach was fine with that so I played nine holes in the practice round and typically the way they did Patriot League Championship did play 27 holes on each day but we had some weather coming in on that last day so they had us play 36 and I just got hot um Nothing else I can say other than that. I do remember my only bogey. Uh, made bogey with nine iron from the middle of the fairway, dumped it in a bunker, and didn't get up and down. But it was just one of those rounds. Made a lot of putts and got lucky. Uh, a couple of my bad shots I got away with. And, uh, again, it probably the, the 74 the next day, I probably played better. It got cold and windy that last day with the, with the weather coming in and it spit rain on us all day. And I made four bogeys, no birdies that last day. And I felt really good about that um, because that was, that was a tough, tough day of golf. But, you know, just sometimes you look back on those rounds and you just couldn't miss. And it was one of those days for me. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, it, you look back and, going back on our rounds and it's funny how you can dwell on poor shots, but and then just from an outsider's perspective, if I looked at your scores, I'd be like, Oh, well, the second day wasn't as good, but here you are saying that you felt like you played even better and how conditions can factor into a round of golf. Um, and I like what you said about how you got recruited basically at like the very end of your senior year. Can you talk a little bit about the difference you're seeing with, with, some of your uh, junior golfers coming out of high school and, and going to college and how you were recruited? Yeah. So a lot's changed. I feel old uh, with, with this conversation, but uh, so, so I, I graduated high school in Oh two. And uh, back then there, I, I remember I, I wrote letters to my college coaches and not all of them had email addresses. So you had to write letters uh, there was no such thing as junior golf scoreboard. There's no such thing really as, as the AJGA, as we know it today. I mean, they played about 30 events a year, but 
a lot of us up in the Northeast kind of thought it was silly. Why would you travel that far to go play in, in junior golf tournaments? So you basically played local stuff. And by then I was in Maryland. Uh, though I, I do think I, I went back and played in the Bunyan one year. Um, but I, uh, it, you know, you just, you, junior golf was different. You basically recruited your coach. They didn't really recruit you. I don't think uh, Coach Cotner at Bucknell ever saw me actually hit a golf ball. Um, he just saw my scores and he knew I could get into school and uh, he met me a few times and he felt like that was enough. Th- those days I think are over. Um, I'm fortunate enough now to work with some really, really hardworking junior golfers and been able to put out about 15 division one kids since I've been here in Tennessee and uh, more to the testament of their hard work. But, you know, junior golf has just changed so much. Uh, when I was, when I was growing up, I remember uh, the best player in Maine at the time was Jesse Spears. And, but the biggest reason Jesse was so good is he went to Florida for a period in the winter. And, and again, that just wasn't commonplace. Nowadays, uh, all, the, all the best juniors are traveling a lot more. So it's it stopped being a, a local regional thing as much as it, was, it is now more of a national exposure. Uh, for some of that's good. Some of it's bad. Uh, I don't know if you can say one's better than the other, but I know that the way these kids are, are coming up, I mean, they're just so much better prepared now. And so you, it's just, it's just a different animal. I don't even know if you can compare the two. It's, it's, it's about the difference between wooden head drivers and, and metal headed drivers. I mean, I I think it's that different of a game now it's, Yes, it's still it's still junior golf, but it's it's not even close to to what it was when I was getting recruited and in the experiences I had as a junior golfer. And you know, part of it's because of technology, part of it's because of our phones, uh, being able to watch ourselves swing a golf club. I mean, I never saw myself swing a golf club until I was twenty four. So I mean, I saw pictures, <laughs> but I, I never saw my video on swing, or I never saw my anyone video my swing until I was twenty four. So you know, the idea that, that these kids have all this in, in their palm of their hand now and, and the access to information too is, has really changed the game. Um, yeah, from just corresponding to, to different coaches or even just learning information. I don't, you know, I, like I said, I just think these kids know more now and they're better prepared. Yeah, absolutely. I love that analogy too, like a persimmon wood versus like a, you know, 450 CC titanium now. It's like, you know, I, uh, recruiting has definitely changed, um, for me at the, at this time because of obviously the coronavirus, but you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of the recruiting over phone and, um, over zoom calls and they're able to send me swing videos. I mean, times have have really changed as you said. And, and we just had a, a conversation, um, as well with another coach and and he was talking about how or we had a discussion about players coming out of college as well how they're just so ready to go out and and play well on tour like we mentioned um, Victor Hovland and and Matt Wolf but they've been they've been at it since they were 15 in these programs and these academies where they've been working out and getting prepared mentally to go out and perform well and I'm sure you see a lot of that with your students. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of it stems from the, uh, where the, where we are playing events. You know, you, you look at the junior level 
and how they've upped the level of the courses they're playing. And, and then at, mostly at the collegiate level, I actually think a lot of these kids kind of take a step down. If you're a, if you're at a power five school and you're playing a, a big time schedule, you know, your first year on, on say like the corn Ferry tour, or if you're going to Canada, I mean, those are actually downgrades uh, from where you're playing because most of those, most of those schools, you know, six to seven of their events would have hosted major championships in the last five years. So, you know, they just, they play such good golf courses uh, and, and they're just so much more prepared. I think from the side of, you know, what took us a long time to figure out the nuances of the game are now being expediated because of things like TrackMan, uh, you know, and equipment. I, I do think equipment plays a role in this. Uh, one, it's obviously easier to play the game now. Uh, the ball doesn't curve as much anymore. The, because you can hit it further, you can get away with some things. But I think, you know, just kids knowing their yardages. Uh, lasers, I think, completely have changed the game. That, is, that, that makes it so now when you hit it offline, you know how far you have to a hole. It really almost doesn't matter. So, you know, things like that, that, I mean, I was – I was not a part of that as a junior college golfer. I remember the first laser I ever had in my hand. Um, the, the assistant pro at Samoset had a hunting laser and he was trying to tell me how he used it. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Why this, this is cheating. There's no way they're ever going to allow this. And I remember making yardage books with it thinking, this is the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to feel like I'm cheating right now. Yeah. Uh, and then a couple of years later, you know, every junior golfer is shooting a laser. And I think it has to do a lot more with shots inside 100 yards than outside. I, I think the shots from inside 100 yards, I remember just looking at flag sticks in college and going, yeah, it's about 70 yards. And nowadays, I mean, kids know exactly how far they hit it. And they've been training that way since they were in high school. You know, a lot of times you got guys like me introducing these concepts to kids way before their skill set allows them to do it. So they're thinking on it. They're processing information that way just because they can't execute yet. They're so far ahead in the thinking process of, hey, I'm trying to land a ball exactly 65 yards and they have feedback because they're using TrackMan or they have a laser. So they know when they hit that ball, they look at where their pitch mark was and they know exactly how far they hit that last ball. And, and that, that skill, that awareness component, I mean, they're just so far ahead of any of us when, when we were playing. Yeah. I think Zach and I were probably right in that transition when they, you know, started rolling out more range finders and GPSs. And I, for some reason it was just so frowned upon, like you said in the beginning and, interesting looking back on what a difference that made in and of itself and you mentioned Jesse Spears as well I mean I I remember playing in the main am at Martindale when he won there um, I believe he went to Ole Miss is that correct he I thought he was at TCU at one point wasn't he uh, he, he may have been I, I think he was at Ole Miss when he won the main am and he'd be a great person to have on as a guest but um yeah, it is interesting looking at, uh, you know, what technology has done for the game and in both, in both just recruiting at, from a college standpoint and then as far as on the course, what you're able to do as well with, with TrackMan and, and rangefinders. So 
Um, well, and, and, and to kind of bring it back to, you know, how I grew up playing, playing there in Rockland is, you know, I grew up with the 150 bush. That's what we yeah. had. We, we had the one, it was always to the, usually to the right side um, of the hole, but you, you eyeballed everything from the 150 bush. And, you know, it's interesting now, it's almost like you have to teach kids that side of it as well. You know, I, there are times where I, I take the technology away from our kids to try to get them to open up. But, you know, when, when you learned trying to eyeball it from the 150 bush and then, you know, I, I remember it was a big deal when Rockland put in the little concrete block in the middle of the fairway at a hundred yards. Um, but I mean, all of a sudden, right? Like when you got an extra block, that was a big deal. And then, you know, 10 years later, I turn around, I have a laser in my hand to tell me exact yardages. Um, it completely changes, I think, how kids learn as well. And, and so I, I think the one thing we have to be careful with is not to take away that, oppor- that learning opportunity from them and to make sure that every once in a while you go play without a laser. You go try to eyeball it. Uh, I think the guys on tour I've been fortunate enough to work with most of them will tell me the number and then they laser it. Whereas most of the kids would, would do the opposite. So uh, again, I just think it's, it's one of those learning opportunities that we don't want to take away from kids. Yeah, exactly. Um, I remember, you know, you were talking about lessons and my first, you know, I started with Randy Wiley and, you know, he had a video camera and he would have to take the video camera back and forth between the range and his little studio and he would print off little pictures for me, but it was never a video of my swing. And, you know, same thing with the range finders, you know, we played with what we had and we never had range finders growing up and now it just makes it so much easier. And it is great to be able to actually, you know, go out and play every now and then without it and, you know, get that skill back of just being able to kind of just feel it. Um, so, you know, you talk about junior golf, you uh, spent some time with Mike Bender at his academy, you know, teaching the elite juniors. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about that experience with Mike. So, I mean, Mike's, I'm, I'm able to call Mike my friend uh, first and foremost. He's one of the best guys you'll ever meet in the golf industry. So he gave me a call one day. I was, I was a, a young teaching pro. I was, I think I was like 26 at the time. I was a director of instruction of a golf course in Maryland uh, I wasn't a very good teacher, but those people were very patient with me as I was learning to try to try to teach. And I loved college sports, always did. Uh, got really close to getting to college basketball coaching. Uh, my dad was a basketball coach, as I said before. And so I, I thought about doing that, going back into that route. And um, just because I loved college athletics, I loved being a, a, a coach more than just someone who sat on the lesson team and gave lessons. And so Mike uh, had an opportunity for this for this junior program that he was starting up, and so I I think he called me July 27th, and I was there August 6th, and the kids showed up like August 12th, so it was like the crash course and 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 how to do it. But Mike was great because he he kind of gave me the keys to the program and said, you know, we got to teach our stuff, but I have no idea how to put this together. So why don't you figure out how to how to do the practice plans, how to get this thing to flow. Uh, but I'm here to support you. And so when you get one of the best teachers in the world as your support system and, and also to have another top 100 teacher and Cheryl Anderson there as well. I mean, I just, I, I just went in and, and 
tried my best and they were very patient with me and we learned a lot that first year. And, and because of that, um, I think our program got a little bit better every year. And it was an interesting experience when, you know, it's, it's a little different than college coaching because with, with the, with the elite juniors, you saw them five days a week four four hours a day for nine straight months. And so you spent so much time with these kids that you had to balance um, how they learned how much do you play? Uh, how much do you let them just be kids? How much do you rein them back um, and, and make sure they stay focused enough that they're getting better? So it was a lot of components to it. I learned a lot. Uh, every morning I got to basically sit the next office over listening to Mike Bender teach. And so for three and a half straight years, I got to basically listen into the one of the world's best. And I asked him a ton of questions, still do. I, I, we were texting just the other day. Uh, we had a question or, or a comment that we were texting back and forth, me and a couple other teachers that are kind of disciples of his. So uh, it's, it's just a great learning experience. And, and what was great was I was already a teacher a little bit. Um, so I was starting to formulate my ideas. I had come from this angle of, of I'd worked for TrackMan for a year. So Mike had kind of just gotten a track man. So I was able to kind of be Mike's track man guy, but seeing how you implement technology into, into how he kind of taught um, was really, really neat to be a part of that um, pairing of those two ideas and kind of the old school, new school way of going. On. And so it was, it was really fun. I, I, I still look back um, and, and see how much that molded me. Mike's one of the hardest working guys you'll ever meet. I, when I was part of a, in the transition when we moved facilities and I still look back at that facility and, and can say like, Oh, I, I dug that trench line or I painted that fence. Uh, and, and can also look back and go, I remember when Mike dug that post hole to put that post in and just seeing how hard he worked day in and day out. I think really helped instill a lot of, of kind of who I am uh, today as a teacher and nothing's ever too good for Mike Bender. He'd be out there with a screwdriver popping balls out after a muddy day um, to get balls out of the range floor and to, you know, a couple hours later be sitting there teaching a tour player. And um, he just taught me a lot about how to be a teacher. So I feel really, really appreciative uh, to him and, and everyone there, but you know, it also really helped me, uh, kind of figure out how to get kids better. And so I had a great kind of group of kids. They, they were really passionate about golf. I still keep in touch with a number of them. Some of them have now gone off to graduate from college, which again, makes me feel a little old, but I remember being a part of their lives for a couple of years and it was really fun to kind of walk with them and, and spend so much time with them, uh, as they, as they work to get better at their games. Yeah, it's awesome that you had that opportunity. You know, for us up here in Maine, it's kind of difficult to, you know, have kids that long to be able to give the instruction that's needed for them to make it to the next level, which makes it so much more impressive what Cole Anderson or, you know, Caleb Manuel has done. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I think what's really interesting is with technology, I, I think we're going to see pockets you know just like Canada has has started to produce a lot of really good junior golfers I don't think there's going to be no more excuses I think for kids it used to be you know the kids in Maine just 
didn't get enough time to work. And I don't think that's the case anymore. Um, I think nowadays, if I would almost even argue that kids in Maine have a better opportunity to get better because they have to be periodized in their training. Like there are specific times of the year that they should be playing a lot and specific times where they should be training a lot. So I actually think to some degree, you know, they're, they're at a greater advantage than say kids in Florida because kids in Florida, all they do is play all the time. I actually think they have a great opportunity. You know, again, they have to be really smart about it, but I think they have a great opportunity to, to grow and, and compete with anybody else. Yeah. Can I just give them a little bit of break? So you, uh, you went from Mike Bender and moved up to Tennessee to start your own academy. Is that correct? Uh, sort of. So I, uh, I, again, the passion for college sports always was in me and, and I had an opportunity. I'm not really sure what I was thinking at the time, but, uh, you know, the good Lord was with us on this one. I, we moved our family up. My wife was pregnant. We both had good jobs. I loved working for Mike. Uh, my wife was a, a NICU dietitian uh, at, at Arnold Palmer and Winnie Palmer Hospital there in Orlando, and, and we were doing well. Uh, but but I, I had an opportunity to be a volunteer college assistant coach at a mid-major school in Tennessee, and they were ranked 249th at the time when I got here. So we, we were not very good, and I was not getting paid, uh, and we were moving to Tennessee. So it was the first time I was outside of the Eastern time zone, really. Uh, on for for an extended period of time, but when I got here, uh, the people at Lipscomb uh, really embraced us, and, and the city of Nashville did the same. And uh, because I was a volunteer coach, uh, the head coach Will Brewer allowed me to teach on the side as well. And so I started teaching, uh, kind of to pay the bills. But but my passion was in college coaching. And and when I got there, we had a really good recruiting class come in, and I was able to be a part of their their progression we went from 249 where in three three years later we were playing at at nationals and ranked inside the top 30 in the country so it was a pretty neat uh progression to be a part of that it was a it was a really great time uh from a learning experience um to becoming a better coach and and better teacher and uh we just recently transitioned out of the college world I was I was not a college coach for all but six months when the uh, Acad- the Lipscomb Academy, which is the grade school associated, uh, gave me a call and said if I wanted to t- take over as their as their director of golf for middle school and high school. And I, I kind of laid out, hey, this is this is who I am. This is what I do. Uh, this is not done. I'm going to ask a lot of the kids, are you okay with that? And they said, no, go for it. So we've started implementing a lot of the stuff we we were doing in at the college side with the high school kids. And um, if it wasn't for this, this uh, pandemic going on right now, we'd be having practice at six fifteen in the morning, uh, hitting balls on campus. So, um, but unfortunately we're at all at home right now. So when you were at the university, what were some um, practice sort of schedules or structures that you set up um, to, to get you guys from, or I guess rank 200 spots better in the country. What would you guys set up there? Well, I, I first give a lot of credit to Will Brewer because he allowed me to bring in my skill set and and allowed me to run with it a little bit. A lot of college coaches would not have done that. A lot of assistants are are kind of given the role 
of, uh, you know, coordinators and making sure that, you know, the uniforms are, are in and the travel arrangements are made. And uh, Will, who's a good teacher in his own right, looked at me and said, you're best suited for, to help run practice. So most days uh, I wrote out the practice plan and, and he would kind of take a look at it, make sure he liked it. Sometimes he would, he would give me some things that he wanted to get done that day. So first, a lot of credit to Will to, to allow me to kind of bring my skill set to the program. But, you know, to us, it's really the simplicity of it. Um, I have this really simple thought that if you drive it really well, wedge it really well, and put the lights out of it, that you'll do okay. Um, so it, it was this idea that can we, can we become great drivers of the golf ball? And so some of that means working on golf swings, but a lot of it means being really consistent and owning your shot shape off the tee. Uh, and then a lot of work from inside a hundred yards. I, you know, it, my, my kind of social media thing now is, is this hashtag making birdies. But the first time I got there, I was looking at, at different leaderboards and, and I said to Will, I said, you know, the team that leads the field every week in birdies comes in the top three every week. I said, so we got to figure out how to make more birdies. And he looked at me, he's like, well, you know, we still make too many doubles. I said, I, I'm not disagreeing with that. I said, but we're in the bottom of making birdies every week. We have to figure out how to make more birdies. And so, you know, some of that looks different for every kid on our team, but a lot of it has to do with being excellent, driving the ball, putting your driver in play in the fairway. Obviously you have to hit a long ways at the college level. And then, and then the other side of that is, can you take advantage of your opportunities with wedge in your hand? You know, when you look at the biggest jump from junior golf to college golf, it's, it's the sense of urgency with wedge in your hand. You know, at the junior level, you're going to get 10, 12 opportunities with wedge at, at the college level, you're going to get maybe three or four. So you got to take advantage of every opportunity you get. Then we had to learn to be great attacking the par fives. Sometimes we were a little too aggressive, but you know, we, we were going to kind of live, live with that idea. Um, I had plenty of kids talk me down and, and tell me, no coach, we're going to lay up here. And I was like, I think you can hit that one. Um, but you know, we, we attacked golf courses. And I also think because of that, uh, kids liked playing for us. I, I think they knew that if we told them to lay back that they knew we probably should lay back because we were going to let them go. We trusted them. We trusted their skill sets because we were able to de help develop them. And, and really probably the biggest jump from year two to three, uh, when we went from a hundredth in the nation to, to then making it into nationals the next year, we improved 1.2 shots per player per, per round in strokes game putting, which over the course of five count four, I mean, we're talking close to 15 shots, uh, better just, just putting the ball. And, and a lot of that was, was a combination of years of work put in, uh, we, we started implementing some simple drills. We, we do a gate drill. Uh, we use perfect putter uh, gates and we use the perfect size, which is their smallest one. It's two inches wide. And we implemented that as a staple drill of ours. We did a lot of touch and feel drills. Uh, so we, we basically eliminated three putts from our, from our group. And then we got really good at making putts inside eight feet. And so it seems like a really simple approach. Uh, a lot of people wanted to know kind of what we were doing differently. And, I, you know, it was really being excellent at the simple things that I think improved. And then, and then obviously the kids were really good and talented and that helped and they were confident and trusted us. And so 
when we looked at them and said, no, you're good. Let's, let's go do this. They, they believed us. And so um, it was a lot of hard work kind of coming together, but, but most of it was just, you know, owning the simple things and, and not getting uh, too complicated and just getting really, really good at those, those simple fundamental things that we believed in and the kids bought in. Yeah. I mean, you know, you kind of nailed it right on T there. I mean, look at somebody like Zach Johnson, who, you know, is a Mike Bender student and, you know, he drives it really well. He wedges it really, really well. And he puts lights out, you know, yeah, if you get those three things, you're always going to score well. Well, and, and I think mostly at the college level, um, and, and Henry can speak to this a little bit, but you know, you'll never see pins as hard as in college events. Like every college event puts the pins as hard as humanly possible. I remember we had a young man who uh, we played, one of the courses we played was TPC Sawgrass, the, the, the Valley course. So not the one where they play the, the players, but the one next door to it. And he played it in February. And then two months later, he happened to win Canada Q School at it. And I called him up after the first round. He played okay. And I said, you know, what, what's different? Tell me about course setup. I'm, I'm just kind of curious. He's like, man, this place is set up so easy. I said, well, what do you mean it's set up so easy? He's like, you know, and he started going over pins that we had. I said, oh, yeah, I know that pin. He's like, yeah, it's like three paces closer off the ridge. Or, you know, it's, it's like instead of four paces off the edge, it's like six or seven. He goes, these pins are simple. He goes, it's, it's the easiest I've ever seen this place. And two months before that, he had, he had played a, a college event and the pins were harder. So, you know, a lot of the reason I say that is you're just not going to make birdie a lot with six and seven irons in your hand at the college level because the pins are so tucked. And so you end up playing pretty conservatively most of the time. And then when you have your opportunities, you just, you just start throwing darts and, and be aggressive and, and trust your skill set. But, um, yeah, it is. It is pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, that's great. Uh, a great point. You mentioned the, the pin locations. I think about some of the courses in New England and when I was playing in college and now coaching college golf, they put these pins on tops of like these sort of dome greens or like on the ridge. So you put up to it, it comes back to you. And then if it gets windy, it's just impossible and, you know, you look at the courses down south where you don't always get those sort of uh, upside down bowl greens. And, uh, you know, other other schools down south, they seem to look at some of the scoring averages from our college players and they're like, oh, they're not that great. But then, you know, you look at like Williams College, um, the women's team and then even the men's team performing really well when they, they went down to Division Three uh, National Championship and some of these schools that you know, they're, they're, they're just challenged because of these pin locations and the course setups, even though they're shorter courses. Yeah. But the greens are just like diabolical, really. Well, I mean, I mean, you see it every year when, when the, when the nation's best players go up to play in the Northeast every year, you know, it, same thing. It's the golf course is, is set up where the greens are the defense and, um, and it's a different style. I, I don't think people give enough merit to the different styles of golf courses and how it lends itself. It's going to be pretty interesting and knock on wood, uh, the corn Ferry tour will be up there in June. Um, but I, I'm kind of excited to see how that plays out because it is a little bit different than the rest of the golf courses they see. Um, and, and I'm kind of excited to see how, 
you know, what, what players kind of rise to the top out, up there? Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't describe Falmouth as like one of your typical old school New England tracks, but certainly if they lengthen it out and if it's a little windy, I, I think they'll be tested up here. Um, definitely curious to see what, you know, the winning scores and hopeful that the event is um, going to run on time. Um, so what about the courses that you played up in Maine? Did you have like a, you know, a favorite in particular or? So it's, you know, I would say Rockland obviously was, was where I played most of my golf. Uh, and then, and then having worked at Samoset is, was just an, an amazing summer. I, I waking up every morning, the, the, the head pro there, Gary soul was, was really, really good to me. And I, I think I was working 30 hours in the, in the pro shop, um, behind the counter, but he'd let me play and practice as much as I wanted. So, you know, I'd, I'd be the first group out. So I think our first tee time was like seven ten, And so if I got there by six fifty five, he let me walk by myself. And, and I remember knocking the dew off that golf course many a day. And then, and then obviously in the afternoons when it slowed down a little bit, uh, we played a lot there, but you know, I stuck mostly around there. Uh, my, my dad still has some head covers from JW parks out there in Pittsfield, you know, your classic little nine hole, uh, golf course in, in, in your local small town. And, um, I've, I have had the good fortune to play a couple times in a couple tournaments up there when I was, when I was playing, but, um, yeah, I got a special place for Samo and Rockland. And then, um, you know, to me, Kibo Valley is, is really, really special of a golf course in, in this country. I've, I've had a good opportunity to go and play a, a fair number of, of really top golf courses, and, and Kibo is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, Gary's probably one of the best pros here in Maine. He's awesome. So- yeah, he put, up, he put up with me. I was uh, – I challenged him on a few fronts. I was, I was probably, I probably thought a little too highly of myself um, at the time, but Gary was really good. And, and Jeff Seavey was, was really good to me too. Um, he was kind of the teaching, teaching pro at the time. And, and he was really good to me as well. Um, and then again, Keenan Flanagan. I mean, I still go up there and, and you'd think I'd lived my whole life up there. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is about, about being from a small town in Maine. They just, they never let you go, which is, it's pretty fun and special to go back. Yeah. We're going to have to get Keenan on here one day. Cause he's, uh, he's definitely a character. I love, uh, yeah. <laughs> I love playing golf with that guy. I remember going up, I, I, I was working, uh, for Bender and I was, you know, I still didn't make a ton of money and we were going to go up, I think for the lobster festival. And but I was trying to figure out how to like fund the thing. Like I was like, Oh man, it's a lot of money to fly up there. I was working in Florida. So it's like, oh, got to fly into, fly into, I think I flew into even to Manchester. I need the Portland wasn't taking Southwest flights yet. So I, I, you know, you had to fly in, rent a car. It was a whole thing. I don't even know if I was 20, I guess I was 25. So the, the car rental wasn't too crazy, but, but still. And so I talked to Keenan, I remember doing a clinic at Rockland. So they don't really have a driving range. They have a place where you can hit balls, but there is no driving range. So we gave a clinic shagging balls ourselves. And I just remember him being, being really good to me and let me do that. It was my way of, I think we charged like 50 bucks a kid and 
you know, we got eight to 10 kids and it paid for my flight up there basically. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I, I think that's the, the neat thing, um, about some of those smaller courses in Maine is you just, you know, you, you got those obviously unique characteristics and I will still tell you that is the hardest 6,000 yard golf course you'll ever play. I mean, it's amazing how hard that got, you'll hit more long irons into that golf course at 6,000 yards, uh, into par threes. And it's, it's, it's crazy how that golf course can defend itself still, um, even in technology, but you know, it's just, those guys were just so good. And, and I was so good to me. And I, and I was just a young, young kid who really didn't know much. Um, and, and to have them help kind of shape me to the, to the pro I am today means a lot. Yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, holes nine, 10 and 11 right there where you got the long par three, nine, another decently long par three, 10 and then 11. And, and you can even go a step before that. Cause at Rockland, it's a hot eight is you basically have to slice it off eight T and, and your boy here doesn't really curve the ball left to right. So I was always having a, a good bit into, into eight. And then you, it's like two twenty down the hill on nine. And then it's like 185 down the hill on 10 and then 210, probably plus 20 on, on 11. And so you got these four straight holds where you're just get you're, you're getting beat up and you're like, wait, I thought this place was 6,000 yards. Um, but it, it, they do a great job of protecting that golf course with a couple of creeks and it kind of pinches in, in a few places. And so there's some risk reward there. Um, it also, allowed me to kind of start balls 50, 60 yards right into other holes and sling them back into our hole, um, which I think is part of the reason why I still curve it pretty good right to left. But um, that's how you played Rockland. You just aimed at other holes and hooked them into your hole. So, um, but no, it's, it's, it is, it's, it's a very tough, challenging golf course for 6,000 yards. Yeah, it's, it's so true. So Ben, we're going to uh, wrap it up here. We're going to have three more questions and then we'll let you go uh, check on your, uh, your girls. Uh, so we have our final section, which is called wicked fire round. And uh, okay. first question, what is your favorite hole at Samus Uh Three. That's a good one. Uh, if you came back to Maine today, where would you visit first? I, I would go Rockland. Um, I'm, I'm probably my grandfather's grave first. Um, they're buried. My, my grandparents are buried. Probably uh, I'd go stop into Rockland second, uh, golf club second. I would probably visit the breakwater and then go to Samo after that. Um, those would probably be the, the order in which I do things there in Rockland. And uh, one piece of advice for our listeners. Uh, make sure when you play golf that you own what you do great. I, too often I see people working on their weaknesses and not owning their strengths. And so, uh, own your strength, be the, make sure what makes you great stays great. Um, I think that's the, the one thing that I think anyone, you know, you watch arguably the best amateur player ever, Mark Plummer. Um, right out of Maine, he, he, he owned what he did. And so be, do what you do great and, and own that. And then, and then go from there. That's such a great point. And we, we actually had Cole Anderson 
last year's main amateur champion on earlier this week. And he, he basically said the same thing. And, um, you know, he, he mentioned Dustin Johnson and how Dustin historically has never been a great putter, but he knows that. And he plays to his strengths. He drives the ball a mile and he hits it straight. And yeah, he's really worked on his wedge game, but that's because he has a lot of wedges in his hands, not because it was necessarily the worst part of his game. You know, he was, he was working on something that I guess needed a little tension because he had so many wedges in his hand, but if you're on a, a difficult hole and you lay up to a yardage that you're not comfortable with, it, it's not going to improve your score. So lay up to the club that you feel confident in and, and uh, play to your strengths, like you said. Yeah. I mean, it's just, to me, that's what it comes down to. I, I see too often junior golfers or, or mid handicap golfers, uh, chasing their, their weaknesses, um, being average at a bunch of things never does you well in golf. So go be great, um, at, at what you do and, and then make sure the rest of them don't hurt you too much, but, um, make sure you own what you do. That's for sure. Well, Ben, we appreciate you coming on. If, uh, if our listeners were to try and get a hold of you, what's the, uh, the best way? Yeah. It, Instagram's probably where I'm most, uh, involved with uh with golf um at pelly golf p-e-l-l-i-g-o-l-f um is is in all my information's up there my cell phone's up there my you can direct message me i get back to every direct message that someone sends me um i love to talk golf and so don't hesitate uh we we have a lot of fun uh helping players all over the world doing it different ways, either in person or via FaceTime or online lessons. So if you ever need me or, or think I can help, let me know. I'd love to love to talk golf. So you heard the man, if you're down tasting moonshine or on whiskey row or something, make sure you stop by and see Ben for a lesson. And uh, we, we uh, thank you guys for listening in and, and Ben, uh, again, we appreciate you coming on the, the call. Yeah, guys. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. And, and hopefully we see you guys come June uh, to, to play the first uh, Corn Ferry event up there in Maine. Yeah, absolutely. We're looking forward to it. And you can reach us at Maine Golf Talk on Instagram, as well at Henry Fall Golf and at ZT Zonlo. And thanks for listening. And this has been another episode of Maine Golf Talk. Mm-hmm.